Shalom, and welcome to the Pardes Center for Jewish Educators podcast series. Hanukkah, Purim, and Pesach walk into a bar. Each episode, Rabbi Svi Hirschfeld will be joined by guest educators who will reveal the deeper meaning for each festival or year cycle event. The Talmud says when wine enters, secrets come out. So prepare to be intoxicated as our great educators each bring a text with them that encapsulates the spiritual essence and holy work of that time of year that will change our and our students' lives forever. Welcome to the bar. Okay, welcome everyone. My name is Svi Hirschfeld. It is my privilege to moderate this exciting new educational initiative through the form of a podcast entitled When Hanukkah, Pesach, and Purim Walk Into a Bar. I hope I got that mostly correct. They're nodding around me. Uh, And I'm here with uh, some outstanding colleagues uh, with uh, Rabbi Michael Hatton, who in addition to being a Pardes faculty member, is in charge of the Beit Midrash learning for for those students in the Pardes educators programs. And we also have Aviva Goldberg here, who in addition to being a Pardes faculty member, is in charge of the Pardes Center for Jewish Educators, uh, and lots of things that happen at Pardes in relation to experiential education and other great things. Uh, I'm Svi Hirschfeld. Uh, it's my privilege also to be part of this team. And we are here discussing uh, the fast days in our calendar uh, that relate to the destruction of the Beit HaMikdash, the temple, in addition to other things that they might be related to. And we thought it would be interesting for uh, a few of us to bring in a text that we think either epitomizes the meaning or raises important questions about the meaning uh, and have a discussion about it, hopefully to help you have your own discussion about uh, the meaningfulness of uh, these days and how you hope to extract uh, important insights from them or even just raise important questions for you about when you're thinking about your observance or connection to these times on our calendar. So if you think we're sitting at a bar drinking beer, we're not. That would be great, but we're not. We're in room D. For those of you who are in the Pardes, it's a really exciting pastoral view kind of room. Actually, no, there are no, no windows here, no fresh air. Maybe we, when we talk about Purim, but when we talk about right. fast days, it just seems... It's appropriate, you're saying. So we have the, uh, we, we have the Torah to sustain us. So uh, on that note, uh, we're going to begin with uh, Michael Hatton. Michael, what have you brought for us? All right, so um, what have I brought? I brought a passage in the book of Zechariah, but let me just give it a little bit of context. I think um, that some of us living in the modern-day reality of a state of Israel, of a Jewish diaspora that by and large is living a good life, sometimes wonder whether fasting at all might be appropriate or meaningful, uh, considering the situation as it is today. So you may be surprised to learn that this question was posed thousands of years ago when the uh, Jewish people returned from Babylon and began the process of rebuilding Jerusalem and the temple. So um, a delegation arrived from Babylon posing the following question, and I'm in chapter 7 of Zechariah. It was a question that was addressed to the Kohanim that were functioning in the temple. I just want to indicate... The temple hasn't quite yet been rebuilt, but the sacrificial sacrificial service has been resumed. We're in the fourth year of uh, the reign of Darius, which means in about two years, the temple will be rededicated, the second temple. So anyways, they arrive asking the following question. Should I continue to cry in the fifth month, which is the month of Av? 
Should I continue to separate myself from various pleasures as I have done for lo these many years? So the question clearly is a question that pertains to the issue of um, the changed reality. So do I, can I continue? Yes. Okay. So for me, what's, what's sort of remarkable in this is the response that Zechariah now offers in the name of God. He says the following, You have been fasting and you have been mourning in the fifth month, that's the month of Av, in the seventh month, the month of Tishrei, the fast of Gedaliah, for 70 years. But have you been fasting on my behalf? You have been eating and you have been drinking. Are you not eating and drinking for yourselves? And in effect, what, what God is trying to say is, it's sort of a strange question that you're asking about whether you should be fasting or not, because I feel, says God, that you haven't been fasting on my behalf at all, any more than when you eat and drink. You're not eating and drinking on my behalf, you're doing it for yourselves. So the continuation of the divine response is, and then maybe we'll have a chance to talk about it a little bit, God says, Mishpat emet shifatu v'chesed v'rachamim asu ishetachiv, do justice, do truth, Kindness and compassion, a person to his fellow. Do not oppress the widow, the orphan, the convert, or the poor. And do not think evil of your fellow in your heart. So basically what God seems to be saying is, I think the fasting is secondary. The fasting maybe is a means to an end. But it's not actually what God is interested in. What God is interested in is that we change those things that we're we're ultimately responsible for the destruction in the first place. I.e., if we're not building a better society, if we're not becoming moral people, if we're not correcting the injustices, then effectively we're not learning from the experience of the destruction of the temple. And so fasting is nice, but even nicer is to do that which is right, that which is compassionate, and that which is just. Michael, are you saying that 68 years later, after the first temple was destroyed, the people who were um, exiled to, to Babylonia, they were still being as, you know, making the same mistakes that they had made beforehand? Like they, maybe that's a, that's a, you know, of course, everybody makes mistakes, but they just really were not, they were so close to it. It was just 68 years later. Like, did yeah. they not get it? I think that it's an ongoing struggle for human societies to get it, to be honest, you know, and that the things that are the most important things are the things that are most easily overlooked in our rush to, um, you know, build our homes or build our cities or have our jobs or whatever it happens to be, you know, and it's just really, really easy to overlook some of the more fundamental things that pertain to the nature of the society that we're trying to build. I mean, honestly, you know, one other point I think which is important, and it's, it's part of this discussion, you know, really there's a bigger question here maybe about the value of ritual versus the value of moral behavior. And it seems like the Navi is saying, well, it's clear that moral behavior trumps ritual. But at the same time, in terms of the halakha, that's not how it worked out. Because we never gave up the fast days. 
You know, in spite of this indictment, we never gave up the fast days and, and we held on to them dearly. So as much as the Navi seems to be saying, don't lose sight of the forest for the trees, the Halakha is also saying, yeah, but the trees are important and the trees can sort of like remind us and, and trigger the bigger thoughts and the bigger reflections that we need to be having. And if, if we're cutting down the trees or, or otherwise ignoring them, then the forest can't stand. But do you think it works, in other words, both, both for yourself personally maybe and in terms of the community, do we make that link between fasting and the type of moral, ethical awareness that we're supposed to develop? Do you think we do that enough? Listen, I, I think it works, but I think it's also work. What I mean is, yeah, we have to we have to try harder to do it. Like it seems to be that, and whatever. It's a theme in Nevi'im. It's not just in Zachariah. It's the Haftarah that we read for Yom Kippur from Yeshayahu fifty-eight is exactly the same theme. You know, with all the fasting, it's nice and it's great and it's wonderful. But what God really wants is obviously, you know, us to build a better society. So you know, it's it's like any other. Mitzvah, I guess you could say, does it really work? It works if we make it work. The conversation I always have with some of my closest friends and sisters is we, when, we, when we fast, we get angry. You know, we're, it's like physically, it's so difficult, and we get angry and ornery. I think it's called hangry these days. In fact, I'm I know familiar it is. with that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and that seems to me to be the... That seems to be diametrically opposed to the disposition or the, the way of being that you have to be in in order to um, be a more um, magnanimous person, to be thinking about the other. I mean, I am really thinking about myself hmm. for every minute of a fest. But I think in a way, when you said that, I feel like maybe that's the point, that that sense of focusing on my own needs, what I'm entitled to, what I have coming to me. Like, why am I angry? Because my body is saying I'm supposed to be eating. And so I'm angry because life is not happening the way I expect it or want it. And I am focused on myself. And I think in a way, I kind of see it that the fast is surfacing what's actually going on most of the time for most of us. Not you, Aviva. You're a very good person. But for someone <laughs> like me, who is really always obsessed with my own needs and wants and, and doesn't care about others, I feel like it sort of surfaces that and puts a spotlight on it and says... See, this is the problem. You see that anger that's coming up? That anger is actually present when you're at the grocery store and someone's ahead of you in line or all the times that you're focusing on what I need, what I want, what I don't have, and I'm not looking around and seeing others. So I feel like it's a great educational tool. I so like it. An opportunity. I might be a better person this coming year wow. if I use that tool. Maybe. Wow. We Wait, can so only hope. That's the maybe the work that you're talking about, Michael, right? Like it's... It, for it to work, you have to do work, you said. Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's work that happens on the fast day, but really the issue is the work that's happening on the other days that are not the fast day. For me, the fast day is just the memory of the destruction more than the discomfort. And it's it's the opportunity to reflect on the causes of the destruction. That's that's what Zachariah seems to be saying. Are you a coffee drinker, though? That might explain your lack of... You know, I'm not like you. Yeah, that's why you're not <laughs> uncomfortable. <laughs> See, you need to get really hooked, and then you'll really suffer on those days, and you'll learn the lesson, I think, in a deeper way. So Okay, those, Well, I was just going to ask you, those people who try to wean themselves off of caffeine before 
fasts, we they, they're doing the wrong thing. Yeah, I'd say go all in. Yeah. Just increase as much as you can so you really get into that anger. Yeah. Embrace wow. it. We're not going to have time to talk about it now, but I am really curious to hear both of your thoughts on once you've recognized that you've done that reflection, you know, the, the hangeriness comes up and you say, oh, that's what happens to me all the time. I'm, I'm generally thinking a lot about myself. What do you do then? You know, like what's the ritual or the mantra or the something that you do on the fast day in order to move away from that a little bit? Okay, I think it's a, I think that's a fantastic question. Like once you have the realization, how do we change? But I guess the realization is step one and being mindful of that. And I guess we, we could say that things, you know, mitzvot and tefillah and learning and being part of a community, are the reminders I think are there. It's just how do we step out of that constant self-absorption to look at them is a fantastic challenge. I, I wish I had the... If I had the answer, I would... Share it. I obviously don't, but I think it's work. Yeah, I, th- I think, you know, what you said, community is an important part of it, or family for that matter. The fact that you have to interact with other human beings in a constructive manner, or at least try to, that's like a constant reminder, I think, of the work that has to be done, or the things that have to be let go of so the work can be done. But it's a challenge. Staying at home and watching movies in bed is not the best thing to do on a fast day? We're not here to judge. Mm. Okay. That's not our way. <laughs> okay, Aviva, you're up. What did you bring for us? Oh, okay. So we're going to jump ahead um, some 600-something years to after the destruction of the second temple. Oh, it happened a second time? This is very depressing. Yeah. Do you want to say something about that, maybe about the fasts being for both? Well, yes, the, uh, the fasts, in fact, through tradition, we kind of put the destruction of the first temple and the second temple, right? The Mishnah says that they both happened on Tisha B'Av, that's a separate, the ninth of Av, that's a separate discussion. But in a way, like it all kind of got fused, this sense of destruction and loss, first temple and second temple, we kind of don't even relate too much to the fact that there were all those intervening years. Because now that we're post the second, we're kind of, we're viewing it all in a way as sort of one concentrated message, I think. So the four fasts that we're really talking about here are um, Asara B'tevet, which is what we're coming up to in the, the year cycle, Shiva Asar B'tamuz, the 17th of Tammuz, the 9th of Av, Tisha B'Av, and uh, Tzom Gedalia, right, right after Rosh Hashanah. And all of them relate historically to the first temple, right. except the rabbis do link this, the ninth of Av as the destruction of the second temple as well, and that's how it gets folded in. Okay, so that's exactly where my text starts um, from the Babylonian Talmud tractate Bava Batra. Um, so there is a, a brayta that says, "Kshecharav abayit bashnia ravu prushin Israel shelo leechol basar v'shelo lishtot yain." When the temple was destroyed a second time, there seemed to be an increase in the number of ascetics among the Jews who decided not to eat meat nor to drink wine. They were, um, it was too distressing to them, and we'll see why in a second. Nitzpalah and Rabbi Hoshua, Rabbi Hoshua uh, joined them to discuss their practice, and he said to them, Banai, um, my sons, my children, why don't you eat meat and drink wine? And they answered, um, paraphrasing here, how can we, how, 
how can you think that it would be okay to eat meat, which we used to um, offer up on the altar as sacrifices, and now there is no altar, there are no sacrifices. Um, you know, can we drink wine, which used to be poured as a libation on the altar, and now there's no altar? Like, Rabbi Yoshua, like, can you not see how inappropriate that is? So he decides to play sort of a game with them, I would say. Not a game. Um, that sounds mean. Not a, Maybe it's a bit of an emotional manipulation. Um, so he says to them, okay, fine. So if so, if so, then we shouldn't be eating bread either. Right? There are, or bitlu menachod, the the um, sacrifices which were made out of the meal offerings also have stopped. And so they said, if Sharba pay road, may, okay, so we'll drink, well, we can, but we can, we, there's something to still eat, we'll eat fruit. And he says, no, 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 Peyrot lo nochal shekvar bitlu bikurim. We cannot eat fruit either because there used to be that offering of the first fruits and that is also associated with the temple. So, sorry. And they would say, okay, fine. Okay, what can we eat? Um, if Sharba peyrot achirim, not all of the fruits were brought as um, the first fruits. So there's there's other lesser exciting fruit that we could still live off of. Um, and then he said to them, mayim lo shikvar batel nisu well, you also can't drink any water because there used to be a particular ritual on Sukkot of the pouring of the water, and we don't do that anymore either. So they, so it says, Shatku. They had nothing to say, really, because he kept, he played this game with them and showed them that every single thing in their life that they subsist on um, is really connected to the temple also. And so if they're going to uh, hold back from eating certain things, they're going to have to hold back from eating everything. And so what, what, what should they do, right? What, what could, honestly, I'm gonna, I just want to stop for a second. Like if we were them, then what would our answer be? Like there's nothing. Well, I feel like they fell into a trap in a way that, I mean, they could have just said meat and wine are celebratory. It's not about a one-for-one one exchange. It's about, you know, the temple's destroyed. We should be sad. Right, That's and we not should be sad, right? Which is interesting that they don't, because like he, like they're in like this different mode. That's very strange. They even go down that road with him. I think. Well, I, I think it's hard for us to imagine what it means to live in a temple reality and what it means to lose it. And really, what they're saying is that the loss of the temple was so overwhelming that it, it has to play itself out in, in how we live our lives daily. You know. And so I think that they were very deliberate about the meat and wine being, you know, temple-related items because that's that's what they're grappling with. Yeah, I'm hoping you're going to get to the next part. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm getting to it right now. So he, I mean, they're they're. We did our choose your own adventure, but now I'm going to tell you actually what it says. Um, so he says to them, "Banai, bo v'omar lachem, shaloli hitabel kolikar ifshar." Listen. I'm not going to tell you not to mourn at all because there's really, there's something to mourn over. Something really bad actually has happened already. But we also shouldn't 
overmourn. We don't do something that's too difficult for most people to do. If you want to be like a crazy ascetic and not eat anything but water which you can't drink either, okay, fine. But regular people can't live like that. And we're choosing to live. Rabbi Yehoshua comes from the school of thought, the Yohanan ben Zakkai school of thought, that we are choosing life after the temple is destroyed. It's almost like these people who are the mourners of Zion, the Avalation, they're in that direction of we're choosing to, to live like we're dead. Mm-hmm. And he is saying, no, we're going to do something else. So what what do you do in order to just do a little bit of mourning? So he gives a bunch of examples, and I'll just you know say, say one of them. Um, he, he says, the sages say that a person may prepare all that he needs for a meal, but he must leave out a small item to remember the destruction of the temple, like, you know, like a small fried fish or like, you know, one particular, this is me adding it. Let's see. What would we take out of the meal? No coffee. Let's just never drink coffee. No coffee um, for you. But that's, I think that's an extremist view. I just want to put that out. Possibly. But that, so I guess that, that's really the point. Rabbi Hoshua, he's a very matun. He's a very moderate person in this sense. And he's saying we actually have to live in a way that we can, um, in a way that's sustainable. And the reason that, did I get to the part you wanted me to say? You're doing great. Oh, okay. No, I just, there's a lot more, but we're not going to get through the whole thing. But his point, I think, makes me think that we live most of our life not thinking about the temple or not thinking about that way of life where where the Jewish people's focus of Judaism was around the temple. But for me, having those few days a year reminds us. That's like the fried fish. You know, like we're going to take away a few times a year and we're actually going to think about it in a deep way so that the rest of the year we can just be normal. We don't have to be the Avalation 365 days a year. So I'm curious, I'd like to ask you, because it seems like there are two positions there. Is it that we can't mourn the temple all the time because it's just too much for us and we can't function? Or we can't mourn the temple all the time because that's actually not using our energy in the right way, that that actually uh, sort of misconstrues uh, the real focus of what we're supposed to be doing. Which, which way do you take that? Because I feel like you could read the text either way. I think that Rabbi Yoshua is saying to the Avalation what they can hear, which is the thing about we can't, can, we can't make people do something that they can't do when it's too much. I think he himself... Um, just coming from that whole Yohanan ben Zakkai world um, worldview probably goes for the latter. I really think he's saying this is not what we need to be doing here. We need to be proactive and living a fulfilling life. Not it's it's much more a. Um, I think he's saying one thing and actually believes in the same thing for a different reason. Interesting. Michael, I'm curious, in your opinion, was this approach too successful? Were we so successful in not making the temple so central in our minds that, I don't know, some of us might say today we don't really connect to it? I know that the 9th of Av in a lot of places become a religious Holocaust Memorial Day Mm. or other tragedies because for many people, absence of temple is not something that moves them. I'm just curious to hear what you have to say. Maybe you can uh, chime in too. Yeah, I think it's appropriate that Ninth of Up sort of took on a Holocaust dimension because the destruction of the temple is, is really about 
it's about national destruction. That's what it's about. It's, it's sort of like embodied by that building, but it really speaks to the larger issue of the Jewish people losing their peoplehood or losing their sovereignty or losing all the things that allow them to function as a people. So in that sense, you know, it's appropriate, it seems to me, to include other tragedies that fit the bill. Um, listen, you know, there's this piece in the Gemara, also Viva, which um, comes up a little later about uh, when a person builds their home, so they leave a square cubit. It's, it's right before that, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, right piece you know, I mean, I think Rabbi Yeshua is saying, like, we have to do a gesture that's meaningful and that's significant. I like what you said, that he's life-affirming, because I think that's, that's really what it's about. And that's what it's about is the Jewish people also. That's, that's been our, I think, that's been our key to survival is the fact that we've managed to be life-affirming in spite of experiencing, uh, you know, very tragic uh, events over the course of our history. So Do we miss the temple enough? That's, that's what I'm asking. Do you feel any amount of regret? I feel like I do. I feel that because I don't miss the temple, I feel disconnected from whole partiot in the Torah, from right chapters, about whole tractates in the Talmud. Like, I feel there's something missing. Like, it's almost like I miss the not missing it, right? I feel there's a longing to want to long for it. I don't know. That Probably neither of that was clear. But do you share that at all? Listen, I, I think, you know, it's it's been 2,000 years and... Our exposure to the temple is, is only what we've preserved through our text and our learning. And it's really hard to... I, I think you can yearn and long for what we think the temple stood for. It's, it's harder to relate to the temple as a physical reality. I think that that's you know, to be expected. Well, on Tisha B'Av, I, I don't think of that in a Holocaust way, and I'll tell you why in a second, but I do, I, and I don't think about the Beit HaMikdash, really. I go back to the types of things that Michael was talking about earlier, about the Sinat Chinam, that... Baseless hatred. Yeah, people. exactly, that, that um, was the cause of at least one of the temples being destroyed, um, or so we say in our tradition, and that is such a huge issue in today and has probably been for 2,000 years. Um, and it's it's so painful to see and to be observe and to be it's, part of, it's honestly. It's interesting, though, that Rabbi Yeshua leaves that out of the discussion entirely. Yeah. Like, he doesn't address the bigger you know, ideas of, of hurban, of destruction. Yeah. yeah. I but, still think it has to do with who he's talking to yeah. in this particular case. So you could have a situation where sort of like people are so obsessed with kind of marking the destruction of the temple that, you know, he, he has to speak to them in a language that they're going to understand. Yeah. Hmm. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't miss the temple, but on Asara Batevet, uh, it's the Yom Kadisha Klali, the, um, the general Kaddish saying for anyone who died in the Holocaust, we don't know their actual day of death. Right. And for me, that's a very close, you know, that hits very close to home. Um, you know, as, as a grandchild of Holocaust survivors, who I have to add, I have to add, and I'm sure I've said this to some of you when, you know, in our lives here at Pardes, my grandmother said, in an apocryphal way, maybe she didn't really say it, she fasted enough in her time in Auschwitz for the rest of our family, so we never had to fast again. There's probably a lot of truth to that, I think, in a certain way. Wow. 
All right, is it my turn? Yes. Ready? Okay. Ready, I did not pick a long one, but it's actually built on uh, so the verses that Michael quoted uh, from Zechariah. Uh, the Gemara in uh, Rosh Hashanah, the Mishnah talks about the different times that the messengers would go out to tell people when the new moon was spotted, the new month, so people could celebrate the holidays on the same day, which I, I think is an important backdrop to what they discuss. And then they kind of ask, well, why not these other months where these fast days occur? So they quote uh, a statement of uh, Rav Chana Bar Bizna who said, the following, he quotes the verse, thus God said about the, the fast in the fourth and the fifth month and the seventh month, exactly in the tenth month, exactly the verses that Michael quoted. And uh, but it says, they will be for the Beit Yehuda, the Sasson, the Simcha. Uh, it says they're gonna, these fast days are going to be days of, of rejoicing. And so the Gemara immediately says, well, I understand you call them a fast day, you call them rejoicing, how could they be both? And it has a very interesting statement where the Gemara says, in a time of shalom, they will be days of rejoicing. Uh, and in times of uh, gzerah, I think the language is, uh, I'm sorry, yeah, gzerah ha-malchut, the idea that the other nations are oppressing us, uh, they will be times of fasting. There's interesting debate, what constitutes a time of shalom? Is it the rebuilding of the Beit HaMikdash or Rashi says it's when we have national independence. You could argue that today, no more minor fast days, or at least with the exception of Tisha B'Av, they don't include the ninth of Av on this list. But what, what I take from there, what it's important to me, and maybe really connects to both of the things that you were talking about, is how these fast days are meant to be, in a way, barometers of where we are as a people. Right? How are we doing? Where are we on the scale of whatever shalom means, like peace and shmad, this idea of terrible decrees? Where are we as a people? You know, how are we doing? Which in a way I connect to what those people from Bavel are coming to ask Zechariah. You know, where are we right now? Are we in a time of redemption? Are we in a time where things are still terrible? Uh, Michael, you pointed out that the, the way to read their question even could go either way. Right? You pointed out that uh, Rashi, I think you said, says that they're asking, well, maybe this is Gula, this redemption, we don't have to fast anymore. Uh, and Radak said they're coming to say, oh, that what's going on here is so paltry. Maybe we're obviously still in a state of destruction because what you guys have achieved here in the land of Israel so far is not very noteworthy. Uh, and I, I love that question. You know, where are we as a people at these fast days, I think, are telling us that we don't evaluate our state of happiness only as individuals, but we should always be asking, how are we doing? And it really connects to what you said before about this idea of how the fast can really challenge you uh, in the sense of self-focus. And I think that that's really the message. And Michael, you mentioned this idea of national home, the nation of Israel, the Jewish people, that this sense of challenge myself to see my life as belonging to this larger picture. And it's not all about me and my needs and how I'm doing and how my kids are doing and but thinking broadly you know where how are we doing well for me that that really is the meaning of the temple in other words I would say yes I can yearn for the temple profoundly because I'm not thinking about the temple that was destroyed I'm thinking about the ideal temple that that you know our texts talk about which is all those things that you're referring to Tzvi in terms of where we are as a people that's the temple, really. That's what the temple is the barometer of. I also, I was connecting to what you said before about, about the Shoah, about the Holocaust, that it's not only the, the sense of how each individual story is so painful. Like I'm thinking, your grandparents suffered. 
suffered to a degree that like we can't, I know personally, I can't even imagine that level of suffering. But on a whole other level, the Jewish people suffered. Like it's this sense of, you know, imagine your, your grandparents have lived in a time where that question of, hey, where are we? You know, it's amazing that, you know, I, I can imagine, how do they react to the idea that on one hand they live in Auschwitz, on the other hand their granddaughter is living in Jerusalem? Um, I think that they thought that was actually pretty cool, um, that, you know, that I live here and, you know, my sister lives here and they have so many, they had so many great-grandchildren. Um, talk about life-affirming. Um, when my grandfather died um, at the age of 91, my mother, who I know is listening to this podcast, hi, mom, um, she, she said something so funny yet so profound she said, you know, Zaidi really had a really good life, except for like those, you know, four years in the Holocaust, he had a really good life. And we can laugh at that, but that's life affirming. That's choosing, okay, that's choosing to live. That's very, it's very different than the Avalation. Wow. So uh, what are our, any final thoughts and takeaways? I'm, I'm excited about the upcoming fast day, everybody. I feel like, uh, I know I'm saying that now, and I, I know if you talk to me on that day, I will be in a horrible mood because I didn't wean myself off of coffee. But uh, my own, you know, what, what's your, what, from right our discussion, Michael, and you know, what's your personal takeaway that you want to think about in this, uh, the next fast day that's coming up? Well, I'm, I'm going to be thinking more about the bigger picture of what the fast day is about. And, you know, what I can do in my own small way to advance the process such that we do have a temple again one day. Wow. Well, against my grandmother's wishes, I think I might actually fast this Asarabha Tevet, the tenth of Tevet. And what I think I might, might do is just really like hang up some post-its that say, where are we as a people? To remind me like what exactly what you said, like what this is really about and not, not about my personal hunger. So my own takeaway is I'm going to try to be kind and not grumpy, which I think you gave me a really good reminder of Aviva to try to be kind and not grumpy. And also that it's sort of a reminder not to expect to walk into the fast day, like walk into shul and expect, oh, I'll start saying slichot, which is hard for me to begin with. And it's going to magically inspire me that if I want to get something out of it, I'm going to have to put in some work beforehand to get myself, whether it's reading those passages from Zechariah or putting up a few post-it notes, whatever the work is going to be, I have to do the work beforehand. Uh, And as educators, we all have to help our students and colleagues do the work beforehand also, because not eating by itself, there's no, it's not a magic bullet. It doesn't transport us to those big questions, but maybe it's a very powerful reminder and a way to connect all of us to do this work together all at the same time. So on that note, I want to thank my outstanding colleagues for giving of their time and their wisdom. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, Aviva. Thank you, Zvi. Thank you, Ruvain. And thank you, Ruvain, to our, our... He's been here the whole time. He's been signaling us on what to say. No, he hasn't been doing that at all. But he's been uh, an encouraging smile and a great warm presence. And uh, he's the one who put all this together. So thank you to Ruvain. And so we look forward to uh, speaking with you again uh, and before Tubishvat, that's our. We'll talk about trees. I guess something. Aviva is very good at getting giving us a frame, so we'll we'll follow her lead. So thank you guys very much for listening. We look forward to doing this again. For more great content, go to elmad.pardes.org. See you next time.